Democrats are doing their happy dance after Tuesday's election victories. But how long will the euphoria last? Welcome back to Cup of Politics. I'm Paul Singer, USA Today's Washington correspondent. The Democrats had a good night in Tuesday's elections, uh, electing Phil Murphy, governor of New Jersey, which was not a surprise, and Ralph Northam, governor of Virginia, which was not really a surprise either, but a closer contest. They also erased a large Republican advantage in the Virginia House of Delegates, which was much more surprising. And that began to give Democrats this vision of a dramatic 2018 wave election where they take back power in Congress. But how realistic is that? To dig into that question a little bit, we asked Nathan Gonzalez to join us for a cup of politics. Nathan is the editor of Inside Elections, a news site that handicaps all the major races. He knows more about the field of candidates that's shaping up for 2018 than anybody else. One note, listeners, this interview was recorded before the Washington Post published allegations that Roy Moore, the Senate candidate for the Republicans in Alabama, engaged in sexual misconduct some years ago. That has cast a shadow over his candidacy. Nathan Gonzalez, editor of Inside Elections, thank you very much for joining us here on Cup of Politics. No problem. Anytime. Um, we've been working on elections together off and on for many years, so, uh, you know, full disclosure here, I actually know and like Nathan. We have to find the other three people then. In the right, world. exactly. It's a very small club. <laughs> um, we, there's been a lot of buzz uh, this week about Tuesday's elections and how much it means, and there's been a lot of hyperventilating on cable TV about the wave elections for the Democrats. And I loved the lead that you wrote in your analysis on Inside Elections. Everyone take a deep breath. We're all starving for tangible election results, and now we have them. But just as the previous Republican wins in congressional special elections didn't guarantee the party would have a good 2018, losses on Tuesday night didn't necessarily tell us the Democratic wave in the House has developed. So unpack that a little bit. I mean, Democrats were really, really, really happy after Tuesday night's results. Do they have reason to be really, really happy? Well, the bottom line is you'd rather win than lose. So and Democrats won and they won uh, many races on Tuesday. Uh, but they had to win. I mean, this this election, particularly the Virginia gubernatorial race, was a must win for Democrats. Democrats could explain away some of the congressional special losses because uh, Donald Trump carried those districts in 2016. But Virginia is a place where Clinton won by over five points. Now, in the end, Ralph Northam won by almost double that. And so Democrats won. But it maintained the status quo. Right. Uh, there was already a Democratic governor. And so it's tough to get, I think, when we're trying to uh, extrapolate the results further, I, I think Democrats are still missing that key victory in a Trump-leaning state or a Trump-leaning district. I think Tuesday proved that they can win Democratic areas and even blow it out in Democratic areas, but those more marginal seats were still looking for those. Now, there's been some uh, uh, excitement, particularly about the Virginia House of Delegates, where they're in position possibly to flip a historically uh, Republican uh, chamber to Democratic control for the first time in a couple of decades, right? right. And this was and this was an unexpected result. I mean, 
candidly, my brain, I, I don't handicap House of Delegate races. <laughs> right, um, my exactly. brain just cannot fit that much information in. Uh, but it was a surprise and it looks like a historic outcome. But beneath those numbers, uh, my colleague at Inside Elections, Nathaniel Rakich, uh, did some number crunching. And there were 13 Republican delegates who represented districts that Hillary Clinton won, or 17, I'm sorry. So, and it looks like Republic, that's about the number of, of delegate seats that Republicans uh, nearly lost in yeah. uh, on Tuesday. And so, again, it comes back to Democrats doing well in Democratic areas. And uh, and the thing that sticks out to me about, okay, let's take those, that, those great wins by Democrats and what does it mean for the House? Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not confident in how, how robust of a campaign those Republican delegates were running. I mean, my knowledge of these state legislative races is that these are not necessarily top tier campaigns. Now, f- now put that up to the House. I think these Republican incumbents are going to have multi-million dollar full operations that are going to be uh, try to help them survive. Well, right. I mean, in, in, in these delegate races, I mean, there's, there's no TV. There's no advertising of any significant portion. I, I Maybe you're doing mailings or, or, or handheld flyers. But I mean... Yeah, if you're running for Congress, you've at least got a few hundred thousand dollars to you know, power some advertising and marketing and stuff that you wouldn't have in these delegate rates. And sometimes money doesn't save you and money's not enough, but it, it sure helps to, to have it at least try to get your own message out or try to define your Democratic opponent. I'm just not sure how much of that was going on in Virginia. So let's go back to your premise, though, that Democrats are proving that they can win in Democratic districts. Um, the The issue comes up now, let's turn to the House of Representatives, where, you know, I think it's fair to say that nobody really anticipates Democrats can take the Senate, right? That seems like a bridge too far. They would have to be, and as you're listed here, the toss-up seats in the Senate. Yes, Jeff Flake, a Republican in Arizona, that's a seat that Democrats conceivably could win, right? Uh, uh, Dean Heller, a Republican in Nevada, again, a seat conceivably Democrats could win. But as Republican seats go... That's pretty much it. Right. I mean, the, the path, the quickly, the path for Democrats is first reelect all of their own, including the 10 Democratic senators in Trump states, which is not a given. But you have to reelect those, win Nevada, win Arizona. You still need a third. It's either going to have to come from Alabama uh, on December 12th or Tennessee or Texas or Mississippi, Utah. Uh, I mean, it's possible. Uh, after right. 2016, I vowed to rule out ruling things out. Um, but the path is very difficult for and, Democrats. And just, you know, handicapping for our for our listeners right that that would the Luther Strange uh, seat in Alabama. This is Jeff Sessions Senate seat. Luther Strange was appointed to fill that seat and then lost a primary to Roy Moore, who is a Steve Bannon backed firebrand. Now, there is a Democrat running in that race, and apparently Roy Moore is not walking away with this. Obviously, December of this year, if uh, Republicans lose a Senate seat that they held in Alabama, that would be news. Absolutely. I mean, it would be it would be earth shaking on the level of you know Scott Brown winning in uh, Massachusetts, Scott r- winning in Massachusetts, which was the precursor to the Republican wave of 2010. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's move past the Senate because you know. Unless we're totally wrong, in which case I'm having you back here on you know December fifteenth. So like, Nathan, <laughs> I'll, what I'll we be do on for... an island somewhere, <laughs> what we wrong? getting ready to sell insurance. Uh, but I've I've looked here at the, at the at the house races, which is sort of more interesting. The, the as you as you bravely state in in your house ratings list, uh, Democrats are likely to gain seats. 
Um, thank you for sharing that. I've piece got four of... kids to feed. I can't. I can't go too. <laughs> you can't pick no, numbers. I mean, and one of the things about last night, people, oh, the House Democrats. You know, this shows us that Democrats could win the House. We thought history tells us that Democrats are well positioned to win the House just based on the normal midterm, uh, the midterm precedent, and that's that. You know, in 18 of the last 20 midterm elections, the president's party has lost seats. The average is 33 seat. A 33-seat loss in those 18 elections. Democrats need 24. So we knew that before Virginia and New Jersey, and we know it, and we still believe it uh, now. So Democrats, it's just a matter of how close and how big of a margin are we talking about. Well, and so the question really becomes, they need to pick up 24 seats. Uh, the average, you say, for the off-year election is 33 seats, right? So do you see 24 seats the Democrats can have? That is, 24 Republican seats that the Democrats can have. Are they out there? I think the the playing field is growing wider. I think the the uncertainty that President Trump brings to uh, brings to the political environment, the quality of Democratic candidates that we're seeing, uh, I think the playing field is widening, and that's good news for Democrats because that means they don't have to win. Uh, they have to they can win a lower percentage of the competitive seats and still get to the majority. They don't have to run the table. Um, but I still think they have to prove they, they they can expand into some Trump territory. For example, there are twenty three. Republicans right now who represent congressional districts that Hillary Clinton carried in 2016. So if they were to win all of those, they'd still come up one short. And even, but within that 23, not to get into too many detail races, but uh, John Katko, Republican, represents New York's 24th district in the Syracuse area, mm-hmm. represents a Clinton district. Democrats don't have a credible candidate against uh, against him. And so if they're not going to win that Clinton district, they're going to have to make up for that with the Trump district. And uh, is that something where there's not a credible candidate yet because it's only November of 2017? Or is that because there's just really nobody in the field the Democrats are going to be able to get out there? I think part of it is the strength of Congressman Katko. I mean, he has a, a reputation uh, a reputation of a, of a hard worker. Uh, he's already raised about nine. He has about $900,000 in the bank at the end of September, which is a sizable chunk. And so I think his reputation is, is partially... Uh, making it difficult for Democrats to recruit. Now, on the flip side, Democrats have, they do have some good recruits in places like Kansas 2nd District or Utah's 4th District, where the Democratic challenger is uniquely strong to put a Trump district into play. Is that going to be enough to win? We're about, we're going to find out over the next year. But um, it's it's kind of this giant puzzle. There are There are more pieces for Democrats to kind of put the majority puzzle together, but we're still not sure which ones are going to pan out. I'm interested in some of this candidate stuff because we had written some stories uh, earlier this year. Sorry, I'm losing track of my years. But yes, it would have been earlier this year um, where there was a one of the things that the, the women's march uh, that followed um, President Trump's election seemed to result in was a dramatic increase in women candidates filing for uh, uh, their candidacy or at least going to these sessions where they're being trained to be candidates. Uh, And the feeling was that Democrats were going to have a pretty rich field of candidates this year as part of the backlash against Donald Trump. Uh, Are you seeing that, that that there really is fresh blood in the Democratic uh, uh, bench? Absolutely. I mean, usually Democrats recruiting means them picking up the phone here in Washington, calling people, ask, begging them to run. Now it's Democrats just picking up the phone when candidates call and say, I want to run, I'm ready. 
And that's resulted in in some districts where there might be one Democrat. Now there are five, six or seven Democrats. I think Barbara Comstock in Northern Virginia you know, has eight cre- what we would call credible candidates. Right. Um, the benefit of that is more candidates in, more districts in play. The downside is there are going to be more primaries that are going to drain some money. There might be some ideological battles. Uh, but as a whole, I think Democrats, I've been impressed with the crop of Democratic candidates. I, I sat down with 16 Democratic candidates in two days, eight wow. eight in a day, back to back to back. And, you, you know, from, from working together, you know, that's it's, I think that's a record for me. But one thing that a couple of things that stuck out is these are, you know, these are uh, accomplished people in their in their field business, mm-hmm. a lot of military veterans. Um but they're also political neophytes. And I think even though some of them have dealt with a lot of hardship in other areas of their life, that running for Congress is tough. And some of them are going to work out. Some of them are just going to kind of go down in flames because they they just don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, it used to be that we would uh, uh, see candidates come through. Uh, you know, we talked to candidates who are particularly the neophyte candidates. And we would have these conversations after, well, I think that's a good candidate. Probably not for this election cycle, maybe for the next cycle, maybe needs a little bit of seasoning, maybe needs a couple of times through before, you know, he or she's going to win two years or four years from now. But that's no longer a thing, right? I mean, we're electing people who, you know, walked off the used car lot last Tuesday and now we're electing them to Congress, right? <laughs> it's it's a lot of politics is timing. You see great candidates lose in bad cycles for their party. You see mediocre candidates win in good cycles for their for their party. And I think that's why you you don't hear a lot of the adjectives from me about grading candidates because it all depends. Right. Depending on how this cycle goes, you might only need a C-plus Democratic candidate to win a district. If things get a little bit better and it's more of a status quo political environment, you might need an A or an A-plus Democratic challenger to knock off a Republican incumbent. It really, it, it all depends. Uh, but I think Democrats, they they have the right strategy. Just try to get as many candidates into these races, sort of let the primaries sort out the, the weak candidates and, and do their best to take on as many Republicans as possible. Now, the other thing we I think we don't know that we, we all get excited about seeing election results. It's fun. You know, it tells us something. It's been a year since President Trump was elected. So and this is the first big win for the Democrats. So, OK, um, but there is still another year to go before anyone goes back to the polls, by and large, with the exception of uh, the race in Alabama Senate. We don't know. I mean, who knows what could happen between now and then that would change this field dramatically, right? I, I pick your, you know, we get bombed by Lithuania. Suddenly that changes the way we approach our, our politics. I was looking at something a couple of days ago that, you know, George W. Yeah, George W. Bush's um popularity ratings went from like 45% approval to 80% approval two weeks after the September 11th attacks, right? So there's all kinds of real estate to cover before we actually get to voting on this. Yeah. I mean, we don't know what this election is going to be about. Is it going to be about healthcare? Is it going to be about the economy? Is it going to be about national security? And a lot of that's going to be dictated by the news of the, the day or the news of the times when we get to next August, September, and that'll be driving the conversation. Uh, but you know, when you take his, the historical, you know, the historical data, and though, and then you start to see election results fit into history, then you know that starts to point you in in one direction, and then it becomes incumbent on, I think, the Republicans to prove why this is going to be different. Um, but the one thing that gives me pause uh, every time I, I cite historical numbers about midterms is that those 
are predicated on the idea that uh, voters are taking out their disapproval of the president uh, on his party. And that's that's right. why these if you don't like the job the president is doing, you can't vote against the president in a midterm because he's not on the ballot. So you vote against his party. But right now, President Trump is not viewed as the head of the Republican Party. Right. He's viewed as his own brand, his his own. He's got his own show going on. And so if voters don't think of him first as a Republican and they're upset with him, do they take it out on Republican candidates? And I, I think that's still not immediately clear. I think Virginia showed that Donald Trump can be a great driver of turnout in the Democratic base. And that's why Republicans should be nervous. But the dots aren't connected as they normally, as they have been for the last you know, 50, 60 years. And there's also this interesting sort of subtext here uh, with the Bannon wing doing to the Republican Party what some people argue that the Bernie Sanders wing is trying to do the Democratic Party, which is now in Virginia, as it turns out, uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party had a candidate. They went through a primary. They lost. And the question was, would Ralph Northam still be able to get Democratic activists into the field to win a race, having offended the Bernie Sanders wing? And he did. So the next question comes back to the Republicans. Well, is Steve Bannon and his wing going to really go after, you know, moderate Republicans in the Senate, like moderate Republicans like Wicker, who's not really all that moderate? Or Deb Fisher, who's not really all that moderate, you know, that could change the landscape if they're suddenly running, you know, a war both against the Democrats and against the Republicans. I feel like there's a lot of mixed signals on, on Steve Bannon and what Great America Alliance is, is doing, in part because at first they say, well, we're going to take on all Republican senators except Ted Cruz. And it's like, well, there, there are very few Republican senators even up for election this cycle. Right. Um, two of them are already not running. And you take out Ted Cruz and you're just limiting the number. And then there was a story in, in Politico about uh, Steve Bannon maybe playing nice with the NRCC and, and not taking on House Republicans uh, and maybe focusing on open seats. So then you're narrowing the universe. And so I, I'm really kind of unclear about where that's going. But but the divide in the Republican Party doesn't help because they're going to need Republican unity to survive what I think is going to be a difficult election. But then from Republicans, I hear some um, comfort about the Democratic Civil War and say, well, look at their fighting. They're fighting over single payer and all this. So they kind of feel like Republicans are going to be OK. But I would caution the Republican Party that for the last eight years, nine years, the Republicans have been fighting amongst themselves. And where are they today? They have the White House, the House, and the Senate. So right. you can simultaneously be fighting amongst yourselves and do win elections because for the last eight years, Republicans had a unifying opponent, and that was Barack Obama. Now Democrats have a unifying opponent, and that's President Donald Trump. But, but also remember that in 2006, when Democrats took the House with Nancy Pelosi, um, it was not necessarily against a, you know, a Bush presidency that they were running. It was the drain the swamp. That was the thing that really, they had a message. They had a message that made sense and they could you know, move voters with the message, not just, boy, that president is a jerk. Right. Yeah, it <laughs> so, was the, and, the culture of corruption um, motto that Ron, uh, then Chairman Rahm Emanuel came up with and then Republicans kept getting themselves in trouble and it felt fit neatly under that umbrella. And that's where I think there's some maybe applicable lessons to this cycle where Republic where Democrats are trying to focus on Republicans and not just be all about Donald Trump. They're trying to focus on individual votes, specifically on health care, 
what would tax the Republican tax policy do to your your checkbook and your savings account and uh, and, and which Republicans are getting themselves into trouble and trying to be tailor it away from Trump and try to tailor it to Republicans in Congress and, and dysfunction in their minds. And, and being about something other than just we're not him. Right. And, and that's where uh, talking to real Democratic strategists, not the ones I see on TV and I'm not sure what they do for a living all day, <laughs> no, but, but they um, voters, a majority of Americans don't like President Trump or, or the job he's doing. They also don't want people to reflexively come to Washington to oppose him. Uh, because that just adds to the the problem in their mind. So Democrats can't just be anti-Trump. Uh, they have to you know, be credible alternatives and, and have something else that they're offering. Well, Nathan Gonzalez, we're going to come back to you at some point during this election cycle, and we'll see whether the puzzle pieces have changed at all uh, between now and next November. And maybe we'll have you back twice. We'll have you back once to actually make some forecasts for us, give us some numbers, uh, and then we'll judge you on them afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the time of the cycle where, particularly at the congressional district level, there isn't a lot of hard data. Um, and I think as the cycle goes along, you'll be able to take these scenarios and really see this is playing out or this is not playing out. So I'm happy to come on in. Oh, where's the best place for folks to follow you on Twitter? Um, at Nathan L. Gonzalez is, uh, is probably is the one that uh, has the snarkiest uh, content <laughs> or at Inside Elections. And the, the website is also InsideElections.com. Great. Nathan Gonzalez, thanks, as always, for your insight on the races. No problem. As always, you can get all your politics coverage at usatoday.com. Check out our On Politics blog. And we also tweet our political coverage from USA Today DC. If you like, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Singer News. Remember, it's never too early for the 2018 election cycle. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to The Cup of Politics on Apple Podcasts. It's a free and easy way to make sure you don't miss an episode of Cup of Politics. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all those fun places you get your podcasts. Our producer this week is Shannon Green. Many thanks to her for filling in while Taylor Macon is on the road. And thanks as always to Chris Muscatello for our theme music.